Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we pray that your word will speak to us today. We thank you that we have your word preserved through the millennia so that we can understand what you have for us. And as we learn about the inevitable nature of the kingdom, the fact that it will grow and expand, I pray that this will give us hope as we continue to soldier on in a very dark world. Uh, We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will encourage those who need to be encouraged and convict those who need conviction. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the title of my message is, Is the Sky Falling? And you all know where that comes from, from the folktale Chicken Little. If you've never heard of Chicken Little, here's a quick review for you. Chicken Little is walking in the woods one day when she feels something hit her head. It's an acorn. And she is convinced that what hit her was a piece of the sky. Therefore, the sky is falling. Now, she's not sure what that means, but she knows she needs to warn everybody. And so she goes to different bird-brained friends and informs them that the sky is falling, and they all decide that collectively they need to go tell the king. So they go through the forest, and Chicken Little and her bird-brained friends run into Foxy Loxy. And Foxy Loxy informs them that I can actually take you to the king. I know of a good shortcut. And so he takes all the birds to his den presents it as a tunnel and says, just go right through there and you will find the king. And so Chicken Little and her bird brain friends do that and they are never seen again. Now this story, this folktale is dripping with meaning. Alarmism, Alarmism gets people's attention, right? When you speak to their fears. When you get people's attention, you have a platform. They listen to you. Chicken Little became the leader. You also see that fearful people are easily led, and those who are easily led are also easily led astray. Now, knowing all this, we do have a society of panic peddlers. The climate is changing, doom is near, by this electric car. You guys ever driven an electric car? I rented one, never again. Not doing that one again. <laughs> but in the church, I mean, alarmism captures our attention. Right? There's always some alarming story. This pastor committed sexual immorality. This famous Christian no longer believes in the Bible. There are scandals that are infecting every single denomination. Young people are leaving the church in droves. This church is one generation away from extinction. If you want to stop it, listen to this podcast or buy this book. Right? Isn't that the way it works? Panic sells. Alarmism worked. It gets your attention. I mean, if you see two internet articles that you can choose from, One being, young people are leaving the church in droves. And the other one says that young people, by and large, hold on to their parents' faith. Which one do you click? 
Now, there is an appeal and allure to pessimism. One, pessimism sounds responsible. It's better to be pessimistic just in case the worst happens. Secondly, pessimism sounds intelligent. Oh, you're just being naive and stupid, Pastor Dave. If you use analysis and critical thought, you will see the problems more clearly than other people do. You are ahead of the curve. Pessimism can give you purpose. Wake up, America. The apocalypse is coming. Pessimism also flatters the older generation. Things are going from bad to worse. Right? It's almost like we lived in this golden age until the young people ruined it. People would say pessimism is prescribed in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.13, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Look, it's right there, Pastor Dave. Well, that's just talking about evil people going from bad to worse. Nothing about the church. So is the sky falling? I can give you statistics, and I will later on. But I want to give you a biblical argument for why the sky is not falling on the church. And it's found in Luke 13, verses 18 through 21. He said, therefore, this is Jesus speaking, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until all was leavened. Now, Jesus just healed a hunched woman on the Sabbath. In doing so, he reaped the ire of the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders who were convinced that this man is not the Messiah. The reason why? Because they had the wrong lens. They used the wrong litmus test, as we talked about last week. But the crowds are amazed. And there is an understanding that this Messiah, this king, will bring his kingdom through shock and awe. Remember, they were an oppressed people, oppressed by the Romans. They looked forward to a Messiah who would come, much like Moses, to liberate the people and, and restore the kingdom to the golden age. And, Dave, and the son of David tempers expectations by saying, the kingdom is not going to come like you expect it to come. Now, there will be a time, right, when we pray, thy kingdom come, where God's kingdom will go from heaven to earth in a spectacular manner. Christ will reign manifestly on all the earth. But there is another sense where the kingdom is going to grow. Where there will be Sons and daughters of the kingdom harvested every single day. You know, every time a soul converts from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, there is a growth that takes place. And so here we are on a different continent 2,000 years after some peasant traveled through Palestine and recruited a group of, father, a group of, uh, of disciples and were reading the same book that they read and wrote. 
the sky is not falling. And you see, when you are convinced that the sky is falling, when you are gripped by pessimism, there can be a sense of fear, and this fear can be exploited by others. It can leave you vulnerable. There can be a sense of, uh, of it's too late, let's just hunker down and let the world go to hell instead of losing the mission. What Jesus is doing is he's reassuring his disciples, which includes you, by the way, that the sky is not falling. The kingdom of God is advancing. Rumors of the church's demise are greatly exaggerated. Now, to build this point, we're going to just survey this passage. We're going to look at the issue, the truth, and the method. Okay? We're going to look at the issue, the truth, and the method. And hopefully by the end, you'll be encouraged that the sky is not falling. In fact, if anybody should say the sky is falling, it's Satan and his minions. That is what is going to happen in the end. So let's look at the issue. Now, this is a parable, and a parable is a true-to-life situation or story that illustrates a spiritual point. And it usually arises from some issue that's involved. There is some, some purpose. In this case, we see Jesus is being opposed again, and even the people who believe in him kind of believe the wrong things about him, and his disciples are wondering, is this going to be a viable enterprise in the future? Is this something worth committing my life to? Now, let's say a friend of yours comes up to you with an idea. He wants to open a fresh sushi restaurant in Emporia. Not like these other sushi restaurants. He is going to use a private jet to go to the coast every single day to bring back fresh fish. And what he needs is $100,000 from you to refurbish a gas station for his sushi bar. What do you think? Would you give him $100,000 for a sushi bar? Now, let's kind of break this down. Number one, 60% of all restaurants fail. Two, we already have a couple sushi restaurants in Emporia. Three, to recoup the cost would be about $100 a plate. And people in Emporia will only spend that kind of money for steak. And fourth, it's sushi. <laughs> when you have to wrap raw fish in seaweed to make it more edible and appetizing, there's some serious problems. Sorry, sushi lovers, you got to deal with the truth. Go to Kansas City if you want it, right? So in this case, right, Jesus is asking his disciples to commit to this enterprise. And there are different reasons why they would be convinced that this is not going to work. For instance, every other revolutionary has failed. There were other people during the time of Jesus who convinced others that they were the Messiah, started a movement, and it failed. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin, the, the leaders of the Jews, got together trying to figure out what to do with these disciples who were preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and a wizened one said this in 5, 36-37, book of Acts. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, 
And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Both men were revolutionaries. Both men started messianic movements, and both men died, and the movement died with them. This has been done before. Why do you think this will be different? Secondly, Jesus had a low pedigree. Can you finish this statement? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Right? He was from a hick town, which would make him a hick. He had a low pedigree. And not just him. His followers had a low pedigree. I mean, you kind of look at it. You don't have scribes, road scholars, intellectuals, merchants, and Turans. Rather, you have fishermen, zealots, part of a terrorist group. The educated one was a tax collector. This would be like a president appointing or promising to appoint, a presidential candidate, sorry, promising to appoint a cabinet of people who didn't graduate from high school. Fourth, Jesus did not receive the support of the establishment. The scribes ran the temple. They were the old money guard of of Israel. They rejected him. The Pharisees were the people's pastors. They rejected him. The military might was concentrated in Rome. They rejected him. The intelligentsia, the Greeks, they have been given the chance, and we see in Acts, they reject him. Everyone is rejecting him. He doesn't have the backing. Fifth, Jesus' popularity was on the decline. Remember how the Pharisees are starting to accuse him of casting out demons by harnessing the power of Satan? Jesus, later on in this chapter, he weeps over Jerusalem in 1334. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that, that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Everyone is rejecting him. And here's the sixth reason why people were convinced it would fail. Jesus died. You cut off the head, the body dies. And he didn't just die, he was crucified, publicly humiliated and shamed. There was every reason to believe that Jesus would fail. But Jesus counters that. He counters that with this truth, which will be proven by reality. Look at verse 13, verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. So he likens the kingdom of God to that small little mustard seed. It is thrown or sown in the garden, And over a period of time, it begins to to sprout and mature and grow into a, a bush 10 to 12 feet tall that 
has limbs strong enough to support the weight of nest and their and birds. There is a slow, subtle growth, and it's very easy to see how this tracks with what we see in Luke. Right, Jesus came to Earth in the form of a fertilized egg. He grew and matured into an infant when he was birthed. This infant was taken out of the country to escape the reign of a dictatorial monarch who was jealous of this baby as a threat to his kingdom. He returned and he walked peasant paths. He was known as the son of a carpenter and he started a messianic movement. The kingdom of God was slow, subtle, but growing. And you look at what happens when a little seed is planted next to, let's say, a road or a sidewalk. And over the years, there's a power to that slow growth, isn't there? That can break concrete and crack roads. That is what the kingdom of God is like. It may grow like grass, where you can't really see it perceptibly grow. Uh, it may dry like paint. It may grow like a mustard tree. But it's growing. And eventually, it will dominate. It will take over the world. One soul at a time. And again... Verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid three measures of flour until it was leavened. Now, there's a little bit of controversy about this one because a chapter earlier in Luke 12, 1, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so some speculate that this is talking about evil growing within the kingdom of God. And I think there's some obvious problems with that. Number one, just because leaven is used doesn't mean that it always has a negative connotation, right? You look at lion, right? Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, and Jesus is the lion of Judah, right? It's all about how it's used contextually. And so these are, are parallel parables. They have a symmetry to them. It's one point stated in different ways. One, it's a man who's sowing a mustard seed, and it grows and sprouts, in this case, it is a woman who is working three measures of flour. We're looking at 50 pounds here. And, and she grabs some leaven, perhaps a starter from uh, last week's batch of dough. And she works it in and the fungus begins to percolate throughout the whole lump of dough so that it's squishy and spongy and it rises. And before you know it, the whole dough is leaven. That is the kingdom of God. It will grow it will expand, and one day when the kingdom is fully manifest, God's kingdom will be here on earth. That is the overall point. The sky is not falling. When you sign up to follow Jesus, you will win. You'll be part of a growing kingdom. So how will this kingdom grow? What will be the method well, it's interesting that he presents this truth in the form of a parable. Remember, a, a parable is a, 
is a true-to-life situation that illustrates a spiritual point. And the thing about parables is, is their meaning is not out there and obvious. There's a certain coded message to them. In the parallel passage that we find in Luke 13, Jesus tells his parable about the mustard seed and the leaven and then follows it with this in 1334. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus intentionally uses obscure language. And what's interesting about using obscure language is when you start speaking obscure language, the crowds don't quite know what's happening, and many of them do leave. I know when I was overseas in Hungary as a missionary, when we had a small crowd, we did some soul-searching as to what is going wrong. But Jesus doesn't care about the crowds. He calls the crowds to find out who is really sinking, who will take the time to try to unearth this parable and make sense of this dark saying. Now that quote, I will open my mouth in a parable and I will utter dark sayings from of old, comes from Psalm 78. And Psalm 78 is, is a very long psalm. It talks about the, the history of Israel, but it's like a father who's instructing his son who's going to give them this picture of what the Lord is doing in Israel, but for them to really understand what the Lord is doing and how he's working through all these Old Testament stories, they have to understand that you have to pursue and seek after the meaning of these dark sayings. And when you do that, you can step back and see the bigger picture of what's going on. Now, when my kids were much younger and I would travel, I would uh, dialogue with them using this fascinating technology called Skype. You guys remember Skype? Before Zoom, we had Skype. And naturally, my kids loved the fact that they got to see themselves on camera, and they also got to see me on camera. And we would play this game, and it was cleverly entitled, Guess What? And they would... They would take an object, and they would hold it really close to the camera, and I'd have to guess what it is. That's the name of the game, guess what? And so I'd see this black object and maybe a circle with a little aperture, and I would guess camera, and then they'd pull it back, and it was a cell phone. So that's what these parables do. They, you kind of look really closely at it, but when you were able to step back, you could see the bigger picture. Jesus is imparting spiritual truth to those who earnestly want to find it. Parables are, are self-sorting. Jesus doesn't chase after people so that they understand what is going on. Those who really want to know will stick around and find out. He's looking for the true spiritual seekers. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is not alarmed when the thousands of people gets cold down to a couple of disciples and some weeping women when he was at the cross. He doesn't panic because he knows that those mustard seeds, so to speak, are going to be part of the greater growth. Jesus makes a promise to, to Peter when he says in Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. Now, the word, I think it should be gates of Hades. Like, when you talk to a Greek about death, it's like they enter the gates of Hades. And he's basically saying here that I will build my church, and death will not kill it. I will build my church, and it will not die. In fact, when we look at this parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, we see that it is actually thriving, right? Countries will come and go, but the kingdom of God will remain and it will spread and it will grow. Now, there's some implications for this. Number one, we should be confident that God's kingdom will win, okay? You should be confident that God's kingdom will win. The sky is not falling. In spite of the best efforts of Satan and the world, the church is thriving. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that you had a crucified man whose disciples fled from him all of a sudden become the center of a religion that transformed the Roman Empire. These disciples, basically, something happened where the disciples came back to him, began to articulate to the whole world that they saw the risen Jesus, that he is the Messiah. And over a period of time, it began to change the complexion of Rome to the fact, to the point where Emperor Constantine actually converted to Christianity. Christianity became the, the dominant religion in medieval Europe. Now, granted, it was bastardized and perverted. But the Lord purified his church through the Reformation. And then it began to go from Europe to start jumping continents. It went to North America. And then it began to spread to the entire world. In fact, I, I was looking at some statistics. In 1910, there were 9 million Christians in sub-Saharan Africa. You know what that number is now? 650 million. Now, I'm not saying that they're not all saved. You know, obviously, there are some theological problems. But when you go from 9 million to 650 million... That is uh, transformational, isn't it? Atheism is not growing at that rate. Islam is not even growing at that rate. There is a growth, especially in Christianity in the global south. If you follow international soccer, it's amazing how many Brazilian nationals, um, I guess on the soccer team, on the Brazilian national, will, will profess faith in Christ. Now, it may not be a Christianity that we can completely sign off on, but it does say something that there is a movement in that direction. And what's happening and what we're seeing is that your typical Christian is not the suburban soccer mom from Dallas so much as a woman living in a shantytown in, in, uh, in Rio de Janeiro or, or a, a woman living in a Nigerian village. That is where Christianity is beginning to, to shift. And this reflects a prophetic vision that John gives in Revelation 7-9. After this, 
I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Right? Christianity is inevitable. I mean, we're on a different continent 2,000 years later reading this book. Something's going right. Secondly, since God causes the growth, we know we need to grow the kingdom God's way. Okay? Since God causes the growth, we need to grow the kingdom God's way. Beware of the prophet who uses alarmism to sell a different theology. When people say Christianity will be extinct in America by 2050, therefore we need to reevaluate our approach to Christianity, that is a siren call. In the 90s, an Episcopalian bishop by the name of John Shelby Spong wrote a book entitled, Why Christianity Must Change or Die. He was contending that if we don't change some fundamental approaches to Christianity, we're going to be extinct. And so he proposed that we need to strip Christianity of various doctrines that are frankly unbelievable, like the resurrection, the physical ascension, uh, the virgin birth, the authority of scripture, the reality of hell. Strip it down, and then you'll see Christianity recover. And what's fascinating about that is the very denomination that he was a part of that adopted many of his platitudes absolutely cratered. When you take Christianity out of Christianity, the church is going to die. Here's another story. In the Seattle area, there was a thriving church called East Lake Church, pastored by one Ryan Meeks. It was your typical hipster denomination. Hipster growth is multi-site. They were adding 100 new members a week. Then Ryan Meeks decided that they needed to pivot in the area of uh, LGBT issues. It wasn't enough to just be kind to your LGBT neighbor you had to be inclusive of that theology. You had to affirm that you can worship God and be in a practicing homosexual relationship. So he told the church, and they also told them, if you don't like it, you can worship somewhere else. Well, within a month, they were in a financial freefall. And now the church is no more. I mean, you look at that and you wonder, what was Ryan Meeks smoking? Well, I actually got the answer to that question. <laughs> Ryan Meeks actually <clears throat> markets himself as a compassionate guide to help the non-religious find transcendence through the use of high-dose psychedelic drugs. I'm not making this up. We now know what he was smoking. <laughs> if you want to start a church plant, I'm not recommending it here. I like you all being here, by the way. <laughs> Find a church with a rainbow flag on the outside, and it'll be for sale in about five years. Here's another statistic I found very interesting. According to research, gay-identified and lesbian-identified individuals are two and a half times more likely to go to a church 
that the gay community would say is non-inclusive. You are two and a half times more like, they are two and a half times more likely to go to a biblical church that teaches the biblical view of me, of, of marriage. Well, why is that? It's because a church that holds a biblical view of marriage holds a high view of the authority of God's word, embraces the gospel, and has people who have been changed and transformed. And what they find is that they're drawn to the community where people are kind and loving and gracious, filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Standing firm on this issue and standing firm on the gospel is a way to have transformed people that gives them something that the world can't give them. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, my sheep, this is Jesus speaking in, in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. The kingdom of God does not grow where the kingdom of God is not preached. The kingdom of God is a place where God is in charge, right? And if you have this alternate bastardized religion where God is not in charge, that is not part of the kingdom of God. This promise does not apply. See, ultimately, there is robust growth when people preach God's word. In fact, the growth rate of evangelical Christians is 1.8% worldwide. Even places in Africa where you look at the Anglican church and the Methodist church that have really compromised in the West, well, in Africa, they are robust and theologically conservative. Those are the places where Christianity is growing. And it's not just evangelism. It's also true that when people are highly religious and committed, and committed to the authority of God's word, they have more children. Secularism kills birth rates. That's part of the reason why atheism is on the descent. It's not growing. I mean, look at our church, right? I mean, we have babies we don't even know about. I'm just going to leave it there. Right? We have a ton of babies because we have hope for the future. We have hope that our little ones, and we understand that they are blessings, and we want them to grow up and bless the world. Now, some people will say, well, Pastor Dave, that's talking about the global church. What about America? Aren't we dying? Well, I want to give some more reasons for optimism, and I'm not being dumb, but these are true. One, the decline in church attendance is felt most keenly in churches that don't preach the gospel or, or churches where there's a very shallow commitment to the gospel. I know a lot of our brother, sister churches in the Ironman Summit, they're, they're thriving and they're growing. Secondly, these churches that preach the gospel often have children and young people. People aren't going to these churches because that's where they've always gone. They want to be here. Thirdly, for those of you who are Christians in the 80s and 90s, who were the leaders of the movement? James Dobson, Chuck Colson, Bill Bright, Pat Robertson. Parachurch Ministries led the movement, but nowadays there's a real focus on the local church, which I think is a very good thing. Fourthly, Biblical counseling has become mainstream. 
when I first learned it, it was kind of like this fringe group, but there are so many resources out there where people want to take God's word and apply it to human problems. Fifth, if you look at the publishing industry, I mean, Crossway Books just produces great works. There are a lot of really, really good books that are available to us now that when I was a young Christian, who knows what you would find when you walked into Mardell's. Six, I think we should be encouraged by the number of, of seminaries that have a high view of God's word and a high view of God. There have been seminaries that have been fundamentally transformed. I look at Midwestern and Southern. They were on a different track until there was a conservative resurgence. And seventh, there are a number of high-profile atheists and agnostics that have converted away from atheism. Jordan Peterson, Ayan Hirsi Ali, Molly Worthen. I'm not saying that they're all Christians. Even Anthony Flew is another one. But the fact that they see the bankruptcy of secularism and realize that it's just killing us shows that the hope is not gone. I mean, the gospel stands apart. It is what gives us hope. And this leads to the last exhortation. Knowing this, stay faithful. Don't let alarmism or the belief that the sky is falling distract you from a real confidence that when we do God's ministry, God's way, and we proclaim God's gospel, God's way, there will be growth. There will be a transformation. We have a certain hope. In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I mean, when you think about the great victories, there's going to be a victory in the kingdom to come. But after teaching on the resurrection, correcting the idea that that some were saying that the resurrection had already taken place and it was a spiritual resurrection, it's not a physical resurrection. Paul corrects them and then he says this in 1550 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be, all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He declares victory because he saw what happened on the cross. Remember, sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what merits God's everlasting wrath upon us. But on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin, right? The wages of sin is death. People die because of sin. Jesus died not because of his sin, but because of your sin. The wrath of God was laid upon him, and then he was raised from the dead, so that all those who believe in him will not die eternally. They will never be condemned. We will all rise again in victory on that great day where the kingdom actually comes. 
And those who are part of the kingdom on that day, dead or alive, will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, here's the application. Therefore, verse 58, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, your la- knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, the reason why you can commit to Christ and be sold out for Jesus Because in the end, you're going to win. You're on the winning team. And contrary to what people may tell you, contrary to secular newspapers who love to run stories about the demise of the church, rumors of the church's demise have been greatly exaggerated. And we don't need statistics to prove that, do we? Because we got the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. That one day we will win. And the spread of the church points to the veracity of that parable, which points to another reality that the kingdom will soon come. And on that great day, on that great day, we'll celebrate many things. But one of them includes knowing that your labor is not in vain. The sky is not falling. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and we we thank you just for the hope we have in the gospel. It's more powerful than any message on earth. And Father, as we preach the gospel in a dark world, this dark world wants us to believe that it is a fruitless endeavor. Give us confidence in the gospel. Give us confidence that in the end you will win. And Father, I pray that we will have a victorious attitude towards the faith, knowing that the major battles to defeat sin and death in our lives, at least, has been waged and won. And I pray for somebody on the outside who might be looking in that they will decide to join the winning team, that they will want to be part of this kingdom, that it will be an inevitable reality in their lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.